Hello and welcome to Mad Hatter's Tea Party. I'm here today at the Jean-Paul Najjar Foundation talking to Deborah Najjar, the director, and Eve Grinstead, the associate director, about the foundation itself and all the projects coming up. Hello. Good morning, Lyle. Hello. Thanks for coming. So for our listeners, would you start with a quick explanation of what the foundation is so we can then move on forward to other things? With pleasure. The Jean-Paul Najjar Foundation is a private museum, an ICOM-registered museum at that, presented in partnership with Al-Sarkal Avenue. And we opened in March 2016. It's the first time that a Western collection is presented on a permanent basis in the Middle East. Uh, and we are very lucky to have a beautiful warehouse in Al-Sarkal Avenue that was uh, designed by Italian architect Mario Jossa. And Mario was um, the partner of Marcel Breuer, one of the pillars of the Bauhaus movement. And funnily enough, in the same year, 2016, as the Met Breuer reopens, the foundation has opened, and we have in common that it was Mario who designed the Breuer's windows, the very iconic, famous windows. So we have a beautiful space where we are privileged to present um, our collection of abstract and conceptual works. Uh, the collection is essentially French and American artists, and um, the first works date from the 60s going up to the present day because we still have a very active acquisitions policy for our collection. It's our goal to have three shows a year and a strong educational program. And for us, I think there are three very important uh, missions. The first one is to present our collection, and um, maybe we can go into that in some more depth. The second is to... Uh, um, put forward the artists that are in the collection because this is a wonderful, rich period in art that has been somewhat overlooked by art history and it's all happening right now. I just came back from New York, I went for Freeze, and seven of our artists currently have solo shows in the city and that is a huge number with sellout shows and artwork prices going through the ceiling. Uh, and that is very exciting and as an institution we're able to add to this momentum of recognition of these incredible, incredible artists, many women as well, by the way, who really fought to show their art and produce their art um, in the 70s. Um, and uh, thirdly, and very important to us, because the collection was built in such an extraordinary way and because the founder, Jean-Paul Neja, was such a patron of the arts, we have a beautiful archive of correspondence between the collector and the artists, and it's very important for us to share that and encourage a new generation of collectors to become true patrons of the arts and be engaged with the works that they collect. So Jean-Paul Najjar, who is your father, started out this collection what, 30, 40, 50 years ago? <laughs> yes, it was a while back. Um, as a teen, he had already uh, developed a very strong passion for art, and he was a very learned man and, and enjoyed philosophy and history and psychology um, and wanted to become a collector. He saw that as a, as a way forward. And then he had a, a one of those wow moments in 1968 in Paris. At the Grand Palais, there was an exhibition called The Art of Real. And it was the first time that the American artists, uh, abstract 
artists were being shown in Europe. Mm -hmm. This show had all of the color field painters, um, had um, so artists such as Morris Lewis, Ellsworth Kelly, Carl Andre, all these minimalists were being shown for the first time. And history questions whether that show was not a political propaganda or even a CIA-originated uh, show. Um, in any case, um, uh, Jean-Paul Najar uh, saw that show, and it was the moment where he knew not only that he wanted to become a collector, but to collect abstract art and this kind of movement. So with the collection that you have, and you mentioned that how it's, it's, the, it's the first European collection that is full-time in the Middle East, um, can you explain what that means exactly and also touch upon the differences between a museum and a foundation because you mentioned both as well? Sure. Um, yes, it is actually. It's, it's very interesting because the Middle East and uh, Dubai, where we are and where I've been lucky to be living for the last 12 years, um, are, I think it's an art scene that's coming of age. Um, and 2016, there is so much going on and we're so proud and honored uh, to be a part of it. Um, but um, whilst many Westerners are setting up their homes here for the long term and shifting possibly financial assets and, more importantly, their family lives here, we don't see many collections being brought across. And I think it's that physical, tangible um, um, asset that they're not uh, uh, bringing across. And my father had the vision when the Alcer Call Avenue expansion opened to say, um, maybe that's where we can make such a great impact and have a, the greatest resonance um, and to come here. So it is the first time that a Western art collection has a permanent home. There are some wonderful um, private museums already in existence, but none uh, to show non-Middle Eastern um, art. So we're very happy to be part of that conversation and to bring something very different to the scene. Uh, and to answer your second question, um, we're very much a private museum, um, and that's how we operate. And we're honored to be a founding member of the Global Private Museum Network, which is um, an institution that gathers uh, most of the incredible museums that indiv individuals have built throughout the world. So the um, Rubel family collection, is part of it. The Feuerle that just recently opened in Berlin to such great acclaim and very well deserved is a part of it. The Long Museum is part of it. So an incredible number of institutions are part of this association. And our definition as a, as a group is very much to be a museum that has been uh, instigated by individuals, that is open to the public with regular opening hours, and that is absolutely non-commercial. So uh, we are open every day of the week. There are regular opening times. Entrance is free, uh, but nothing is for sale, uh, which, of course, poses a number of questions in terms of funding um, and sponsorship, which is another, um, another aspect of it. But, um, but it's wonderful to be part of that discussion and to be able to show our collections regularly with a solid program for all audiences. So, uh, about this collection, where do you house everything? I mean, it, I assume it's, it's, a, it's a rather large collection. <laughs> yes, we. Um, well, it was very exciting because when the collection came here, it had been in storage for 30 years, and we had a beautiful year and a half of opening um, heavy, um, perfumed wooden crates that you know had the. the 
the traces of the years, and uh, most of the collection is indeed now in Dubai. Uh, we have it, uh, a good part of it is stored here in our warehouse in Al-Sarkal Avenue, and then some of the larger sculptural works are spread out through the world. Um, it's very important to be engaged in museum loans and work with uh, other institutions who are interested in these artists or in this period, and that's something that we're very much looking to develop further and further, so to tour our exhibitions is something that we're constantly talking about as well. So with the shows that you have, uh, kind of with, the, with the shows that you have presenting in, in Dubai, what's the rotation and how do you go about uh, creating these? Well, the, uh, the foundation aims to have three shows a year. The, um, the calendar is one show in September, one show in November, and another in March. We have a wonderful curator, Jessamine Fiore. Jessamine is a New York-based writer and curator. She has run her own nonprofit gallery in Ireland for many years. She's the co-director of Gordon Matta Clark's estate, and she puts together um, really wonderful shows for us, and she focuses on the group shows. In terms of the solo shows, because we want to give that platform to the artists in our collection, like the founder, Jean-Paul Najar, did over the decades supporting his artists and their careers, we then invite different curators to take part in those shows. In this show and the show you had before, you're presenting a lot of writing and documentation that you've had from uh, your father's correspondence with the other artists. And I know that, and I assume as well, that you'll be showing this throughout all the other shows as well. How, how does that uh, work? How, how do you archive everything? What is the connection between the work and, and all these documents? The archives that we have are a very special part of the collection because in addition to the works of art that our founder, Jean-Paul Najar, gathered throughout the years, he also was very careful to keep nearly every single piece of paper that went between him and any of the artists, whether they became eventually a big part of the collection or not. And we appreciate them because they demonstrate a very human side of the collection. Um, so for any given artist, we have postcards and Polaroid photos and some scribbles, some drawings that are a little bit more work-based, and we'll talk about uh, potential works of art in the making. But they really demonstrate the relationship between the collector and the artist that is quite rare and quite special. The current show has an archive table that has a small fraction of our entire archives, and we intend to exploit this resource for all of our shows in the future to give a broader picture um, to our audiences and visitors about the relationship between Jean-Paul Najar and the artists and to give them a better idea of the historical context. So for this show, as you said, you have a, like, a large table that has all these writings. Um, so can you explain, for instance, uh, the specific show we have right now and how, how these documents kind of how they correspond, how these documents reflect that interaction, what is their added value, and what's the difference with future shows? So the current show, entitled Jean-Paul Najar, Vision and Legacy, which is on view through June 30th, um, was titled as such because we wanted to demonstrate how it was very clear from the very beginning, from the late 1960s, that uh, Jean-Paul Najar had a very clear vision of what his collection was going to be and that he's, his vision was one day to have this legacy of establishing some sort of 
space for all of the art to be together. He didn't surely necessarily imagine that it would be in Dubai, but he was always very determined to have the artists and art be shown together, and he wanted to show the creation of such a collection. One of the fascinating things I found in doing research in these archives was that every single artist he ever interacted with has a file, whether the file just contains one letter and after that they had no relationship, which demonstrates that he had a kind of vision and methodology in collecting that he had to plan decades in advance because he always knew that any encounter with any artist was the potential of a relationship that would last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which he had, um, of which he had several with many of the artists that are now shown in our, in our current show. I think also this was um, uh, enhanced by the historical context when he uh, started collecting, and we've mentioned that, that turning point for him in, in the exhibition in 1968. And then we zoom forward to the 1970s, which is really the bulk of the um, uh, works in the collection uh, emanate from that very rich creative period. And in the 1970s, you must remember, Paris had just come out of the student revolts, which were really a marking point for France. And New York was completely bankrupt. We're talking a city that can't even afford to pay for its own police anymore. And the artists were literally uh, squatting, uh, creating. They None of them ever thought they would live from their art. Um, and we're talking about Jean Heistein, incredible American sculptor in our collection, who had a construction business with Richard Serra and did plumbing with Gordon <laughs> Maddock-Clark. And this is how uh, they got by. And suddenly they turned to France and Europe where there's some money and where people are interested in their art. And in many ways, thanks to some incredible gallerists who are important to be mentioned as part of even the relationship of our founder with the artists. Many came through gallerists such as Ileana Sonnebend, came through Paula Cooper, um, or through Guillaume Olivierville, which, with which there was a collaboration for some time. So Paris became very much a go-to for these American artists. And the French artists were also going to America. So there was a very rich exchange where uh, the collector was able to play a critical role and really have his... Uh, have his say in in the art scene, and that's very very exciting and reflected in the archives, but also in the way that he collected. And what we see in this collection, which is wonderful, is great depth. So for every artist, we will have a large number of works, we'll have a large number of exchanges, letters, photographs, etc. So we can draw from these for a very long time in our exhibitions. How does the system that you have in, in, in work now uh, reflect your, your new acquisitions when it comes to collecting the art or uh, continuing collecting the same artist or even um, keeping some sort of correspondence added to the files they already have? Is there a system? There is, there is absolutely, and it's a very, um, in, in terms of keeping correspondence in the relationship with the artists, it's one that's completely based on affection, because uh, all those who are living, and we're lucky that most of them are, although they're in their 70s, 80s, some are close to their 90s, had such a meaningful relationship 
um, with the founder that this goes on through the generations and I, being lucky enough to be his daughter those relationships carry through and that's really the beauty of it um, now we it's very important for us that the collection stay anchored in the present day and contemporary which is why we continue with acquisitions we're today in the discovery phase where we're still we haven't inventorized the works on paper yet for example so we really don't yet have the complete picture uh, but we have a pretty good picture of the collection and the acquisitions are currently um, um, very much a continuation of our founders philosophy and in fact we have a checklist for acquisitions and we're a small committee who discuss them and one of them is would the founder have acquired this work and we're very lucky that we have enough people around us who can uh, also uh, say whether he would have or would not have the interesting next challenge in the years to come is going to be to find the younger contemporary artists who are working in a continuation of the principles of uh, the collection and selecting them because that's very much what the founder did. These artists were all young and experimental at the, at the time and that's how he collected them and supported them. So, you know, for example, we have so many works on very toxic fiberglass and in the 70s that was an exciting new medium that artists were working with you know, without masks and, and taking insane risks. But at the time, nobody knew that that was the case. And um, and I think we really want to go in that direction. And that may include new media. It may include all sorts of, of different approaches. But um, that's for the years to come, a very exciting challenge. And from what I understand, you're still doing, uh, or you're still trying to do residencies and interactions with the artists. How does that go about, and how does that fit into your system? Well, that's something very exciting for us, um, and uh, we'll start our first residency this September. We will be having a um, show by American artist Judy Rifka, and Judy is an incredibly prolific modern um, uh, modern in the sense of, of contemporary and up-to-date with what's happening artist and I encourage you to follow her on Facebook because Judy posts pretty much every day and it's a very much a medium of reaching out for her so Judy will be coming to Dubai for two weeks she will be having a residency here in the foundation where she will produce some new works for the show she will also be um, hosting workshops for um, students, she will be giving talks, and she will take an apprentice in for um, for five days to assist her in her work production and exchange with. And the way that we'll select that apprentice is quite an exciting competition uh, format. So that's something that's coming uh, that's going to be coming online shortly. Um, now, uh, for us, it's very interesting also to offer um, art students and art lovers in the Middle East the opportunity to meet a woman who was a prolific artist since the 70s, who was Keith Haring's best friend, who hung out with Patti Smith, and who at the age of, I never should say her age, but Judy is in her 70s, although she doesn't look a day older than 45, and she is the most um, enthusiastic, uh, cool person you could come across. So I really encourage everyone to come through the foundation, meet Judy, and, and enjoy understanding what it means to have been an artist in New York since the 70s and have lived through the 80s, the 90s, and then turning into the 21st century and still being current. And Judy has a solo show 
here right now at the Amstel uh, Gallery in the Yard in New York, and is we're excited to have her here. She's a terrific artist. Um, thank you both for talking to us. Uh, for all the listeners, the current show, Jean-Paul Najjar's Vision and Legacy, is on till June the 30th. And as for Judy Rivka's show, that's, that opens up September 19th, while her residency starts September the 7th. And thank you for listening.